música de Boulevard? ¿Gusta verle? I know you guys can understand me. A few of you guys. We are in Miami, right? So, you know, you got to learn a little bit here and there. Great to see you guys. My name is Christopher, my wife, Genesis. Uh, we are CMML missionaries, but we now live in the United States of America. We live in uh, South Carolina, which is almost as good as living in Florida, the free state of Florida. Now, we were driving down, and we were looking at the map, uh, what, traffic time, like 5 o'clock, and it said 35 minutes. I'm like, oh, easy. And then there was an accident, and um, we're eating supper, and I'm like, it's 55. I'm like, okay then, we're not going to eat supper. So, well, we did kind of, but on, on our way. <laughs> so we're in the car, and we're screaming down here. And then all this traffic and stuff, and I'm like, Genesis is like, this is so beautiful, so great. I'm like, you still want to live here? Silence. I'm like, oh, okay. No, had a great time. We came down to give a conference to the Spanish-speaking assemblies in South Florida, uh, as they call it, um, Unfortunately, at the last minute, because of Omicron and everything, uh, they decided to go full Zoom, uh, except for one of the meetings. So that's been kind of a disappointment. Uh, it's been one of the things that's been happening with the Spanish-speaking churches across uh, the globe, from Mexico down to the lower part of Argentina, is Christians are living in a lot of fear. Uh, they really believe everything they see in the news, and they think it's kind of the only alternative, the only truth. And it's led to a lot of people being afraid to even meet, to even come together. So I think I've always been encouraging them. You know, we need to be wise, but we got to also be courageous. And we got to understand first things first. Um, anyways, I'm not here to talk about that. Uh, that's the message for them. Uh, <laughs> but it's some of the things that we deal with. So Genesis and I uh, were married four years ago. My story goes back further than that. I was a missionary kid born in Bolivia um, 32 years ago. I think I'm 32. I actually want to stop counting. I'm getting to that age. But my parents have been missionaries 50 plus years now and are still in Bolivia, South America. And if you open a missionary prayer handbook, you're actually going to find four of my siblings, including myself. Um, one of them is a Johnson now. He married Luke Johnson. They're in Tanzania. You might see my brother Jerry, who lives in northern Cyprus, the non-existent country of northern Cyprus, which you can ask me about if you want later. And then uh, my brother Jesse, who is on his way returning to Bolivia with his family as well. And Genesis and I, I felt from the Lord to be in the United States of America, uh, working with Hispanics worldwide. Now, how? I was a missionary for 11 years, still am with CML, and joined by my beautiful wife, Genesis, a few years back. And the question is, why am I in America? Why am I not in South America again? Well, I could give you a lot of different answers. But first of all, a few years ago, the Lord gave us a ministry with books. I published a couple books in Spanish. One of them became an international bestseller, broke a bunch of records. We actually beat out Beth Moore two years in a row in sales in Spanish, which was pretty cool. Uh, that opened all kinds of crazy doors with different churches, different denominations, different countries. So we started traveling a lot and living in a communist country like Bolivia. Oh, I said communist. I'm sorry. That doesn't exist anymore. No, yeah, it does. Sorry. I come from that 16 years later. A really difficult place, and it'll shut down the country anytime. There's all kinds of problems, all kinds of issues. So living there was really tough. Um, but we felt from the Lord that we needed to go somewhere where we could fly it and travel more reliably. The other thing was when we came to the United States a couple of years ago to get Genesis in here legally, you wouldn't imagine how hard it is, how long it is. So we had to wait about a year and a half and then finally get Genesis in on our green card and come to the United States. And then once we were here, we're like, well, do we go back? to South America or to another country, or do we stay in the United States? And we felt from the Lord strongly to stay in America. One of the reasons is this. Let me give you a statistic. There's about 3,000 assemblies across the United States and Canada. There's about 3,000 missionaries from Canada and the United States across the world. The average church 
has about 25 people. You do the math. You say, oops. I mean, there are exceptions to the rule, and I think I'm looking at one, at one of them. But we go to many different churches where we see a lot of our beloved older believers, but their you know, average age is probably 75 years old, being generous. And I love them to pieces. And they love us to pieces, but they're looking around and saying, what's the future? What is it going to look like for our assemblies later on? How do we not only survive, but expand? And all of a sudden, there's a lot of fear in their eyes. There's a lot of saying, you know, 50, 60 years ago, it wasn't like this. So that's part of the message we're going to talk about tonight. But I'm not going to belabor that point. But one of the things that Genesis and I felt is, while our heart is for the Hispanics and for the Hispanic assemblies across South America, Central America, the Caribbean, we also feel a great need in America for a need for encouragement, uh, a, a need to shout out that we're not allowed to give up, that we're not allowed to throw in the towel, that we need to keep working while we still have strength and time and opportunity and talents to do so. And God hasn't given up on this country. It might be very difficult times, but it reminds me always of the story of Daniel. You know, Daniel was a man who, no family, all the way over in Babylon, no reason to follow God, yet he chose to. He was one in a million. He just decided, him and his three friends, they were going to keep honoring God no matter what. And I think when it comes to the very end, God's going to say, not what about America's condition? He's not going to say, what about your family? What about your church? He's going to say, what about you? What about me? And we're going to be responsible for how we used our opportunities, our times, our talents, right? That's what it's about. So part of us is saying we have a a heart that's torn. We want to be able to help even if it could, uh, like we say in Spanish, un granito de arena, a little grain of sand, you know, add it to the pile and try to make a difference as well. That being said, before we get into the message, part of our ministry now is uh, trying to find creative ways to get the gospel across the world, uh, especially to younger generations, especially to the non-Christians. Now, that being said, I don't consider myself an evangelist. That's not my gifting, um, but the Lord has called us all to do it in different ways. When we published the book, this is actually in the English version. It's called Confessions of an Inquisitor. This was a book that broke records in sales in the Spanish-speaking world. Um, and it's available in most Christian libraries in Spanish nowadays. We're really grateful for that. But our number one readers are non-Christian youth. Okay, And this book has been used in curriculums in Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, and Panama that I know of. And what these, they do is these, these are secular schools, Catholic schools, Seventh-day Adventist schools, and they use the book in their curriculum. And then when they, depending on where, in Colombia, for example, many times we've been invited and they pay for us to go to their schools and talk to them about Jesus. I mean, I'm not kidding you. Because the book is historical fiction. It's bloody. It's gory. It's about the Holy Inquisition in the time of Martin Luther. And it's a story of an inquisitor who wants to find out the truth, realizes this isn't what God wants from me because the Inquisitors tortured and bloodied and destroyed society in the Middle Ages. One of the worst inventions of humanity in all times was probably the Inquisition. It makes Hitler look like an absolute baby, just so you understand what we're talking about here. And he says, I can't do this. I don't want this. And he goes from Inquisitor to Fugitive, uh, meets up with Martin Luther, and well, you've got to read the rest of the story to find out. Um, then we wrote another book that's just what I call Church History for Dummies. Um, called Heroes. A lot of us don't want to read 5,000 pages on church history. Uh, so I did it for you, and then I took it down, and I made it into story form and exciting and interesting. The good, the bad, and the ugly 
like I like to say, but hopefully also inspirational. These books are available in English. They're available in Spanish. That's one of our main ministries right now, is reaching people with historical fiction, with something that's inspirational, something that's easy to read, mainly in Spanish, but then we found that people in English also appreciate it too. So on the back table, we have some of the books in both languages, if you like. And we also have some other projects we're working on that I can't give away yet, but we are hopeful. And if you can't get it tonight, they're all available on Amazon. Now, one of the things we have to deal with, though, is how to reach the new generation, the young people for Christ. Uh, Again, I don't consider myself an evangelist, but we had great opportunities. For example, when Confessions of an Inquisitor is running at school, they'll invite us in to talk about the book. So the first time we had to do this was in Bogota, Colombia, I remember a few years, a couple years back. And so we go into this school, there's about 500 students are waiting in the in this big, huge room, in the auditorium, waiting for us. Now, I was dressed from head to foot like an inquisitor, in blood red robe with my little, uh, you know, like a monk. And I had my head covered, and we had this dark music and the somber, and the lights were down and everything. And I'm walking through them, and my head is starting to say, what are young people from Colombia, which aren't very different from the United States, by the way, going to care to talk to an author or even read a book or even be interested why would this be interesting to them? Now, they've all read the book in their curriculum, so I'm like, okay, we'll see what happens. So I'm a little worried about how they're going to react, and I'm walking down the aisle with my head covered, and all of a sudden I see out of the corner of my eyes, out of the corner of my robe, actually, <laughs> I see all these students just starting to stand up and just applauding. It was mind-blowing to me. All 500 of them, and you couldn't even hear yourself think. We get to the front, and one of the things Genesis and I had decided right away is if we get an opportunity to talk to these kids, we're not going to talk about the gospel. Now, you're going to be like, wait, what? That, that sounds really wrong. Why, why would he do that? And I said, wait one second. They've read a book that talks about Jesus. It talks about the gospel. It's very obvious. It's very clear. So I want them to ask me. I don't want to grab the Bible and hit him over the head. I want them to ask me, what is their reaction? After our little presentation about some history and whatnot and some interesting different facts, we opened it up. Nine out of ten questions, guess what they were? About Jesus, about God, about salvation, about Martin Luther, about what would you tell the Pope if you could. All these different things. They asked us. And all of a sudden, when I answered them back, it didn't feel like I was bashing them on the head because it was their idea. And that's been kind of the, some of our questions. How do we inspire our church members Uh, towards continually learning about the Lord? How do we share the gospel in creative and new ways so that people will react and will understand and will appreciate? Um, One of the big dreams we have right now with Genesis is uh, we've done across different churches in both Spanish and English, in South America and in here, uh, different sermons on a series of messages on church history. I'm passionate about church history. Not the dates and the numbers, but the lives and bringing it to life and making it exciting. And we've done it with with Bible school level, 30 hours, and then with 10 little meetings or something like that. But the problem is, how do I go to a church 10 different times in a row? It's not possible. So we're, we're hoping, and this very new project, we're considering uh, next year flying to Europe and doing a tour of Europe and filming in English and in Spanish a series of church history in person in the places where these things would have happened with the different heroes of the faith. And then giving it to churches so you guys can use like on a Wednesday night and then you have a discussion about it. You can learn church history at a very, hopefully at a very high level, but it's easily accept, accessible. And in English, we have a lot of material. So it might not be as necessary in English. In Spanish, it's very little to nothing. And what there is, uh, is either poorly done or has very bad theology. So there is a massive need. So we'd ask you to pray for us in that. Uh, we're, we're starting to daydream about that, try to think about that, trying to 
plan on that and, and seeing how that can work. So that brings us into the message now that we're going to talk about. And I'm going to start with a little bit of church history, of course. Not surprising, right? Let me just make sure I pull this up real quick. And we're going to run through, um, hopefully will be a, of encouragement to us all tonight. One question before, before we continue. Anybody between 13 and 25 can answer this question. 13 years old and 25 years old, okay? You guys, any of you guys can answer this question. What country was I... What? Sorry. What continent was I born on or in? What continent was I born in? 13 to 25 years old. What continent was I born in? They don't teach geography anymore, do they? Yes. What's your name? All right, Annabelle. Congratulations. Give her a hand. All right. So, sorry. South America. Bolivia is the center of South America. Yes. So we are the armpit of South America. I am from there, so I'm allowed to say that. Okay. You may or may not recognize this place. Most likely you do not. This place is called Monte Cassino. No, it is not in Las Vegas. It is in outside of Rome. Okay? Monte Cassino was built in about uh, the 530 after Christ. So that's a long time ago, 1,500 years ago. Okay, And Monte Cassino was built during what is called the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages began about 476. So 476 is a big year in the calendar of, of world history even. It's the year where the Roman Empire fell to the Goths, the Visigoths. And the Goths and the Visigoths didn't care about society, about military organization, about uh, art, about language even. All they cared about was pillaging, raping, taking what they wanted, leaving and coming back the next year and doing it all over again. So basically the entire world fell into what is called the Dark Ages because they forgot to pay the electric bill. No, of course they didn't. It's because anarchy set in. There was no government anymore. There was nobody that cared. So basically it was feudal states fighting against each other and there was warlords and mafia lords, as you would think of it, you know, in a, in a way. And it was just horrible horrible so any concept of learning of writing of reading of education of art of music was basically thrown out the door and it was basically survival time for the next 400 years or so from the year 476 all the way into about eight or nine hundred depending where you break it down in the middle of this era at the very onset of it actually some christians got together and they built what is considered historically to be first monastery now it's going to be very funny when you hear monastery because when you think of monasteries today you think of i'm gonna be real honest homosexuality homosexuality pedophilia uh and a lot of people who maybe had good intentions but they've gone very very far away from that and they've cloistered themselves up with all these weird rules and regulations to make themselves feel holier than others it's like what this doesn't sound very biblical very spiritual or very healthy in any single way right this was very different. So when this started, the problem was that there was so much anarchy and violence that the Christians decided to build a community. They put up these walls, and inside of this wall of Monte Cassino, they had a school, they had a hospital, they had houses, they had a church, and they also had a little bit of farmland. So they would cultivate their own crops, and they would sell it to the people of the city. And they put it on top of a hill on purpose because one who has a light does not hide it under a bushel. 
The idea was for the world to see and for Rome, the biggest city in that time, for them to come out into this walled city and be safe because the Goths and the Visigoths would ended up respecting them because they were had a church because they had walls they would kind of leave them alone so then people could come in educate their children go to the hospital um and go to church and then come back into the world so the question was how can we be in the world but not be of the world it's one of the most difficult questions actually for almost every christian of all time it's a very relevant question today how jesus told me i'm supposed to be in the world i can't take that away but he tells me i'm not supposed to be of the world So how much in do I go? How dirty do I get? What does it look like? That's a difficult question, man. But I think they got it right in this time. It started with something very good. It was actually not monks and nuns. It was actually families. It was actually children. There was none of this celibacy and all these different rules. That came later, and it got ugly. But it didn't start that way. And that's exactly the problem. It started so well, but when the Dark Ages ended, they didn't know what to do with these monasteries. Some of them were turned into schools, others into universities, a lot of them into monasteries. But their, their usefulness basically ceased to exist. And instead of reconnecting with society, they became elitists and separatists and the, 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 the spiritual, the, the super intellectual. And there was no longer this connection between a way for people to learn about God. I'll take this into our context today. If you look at 1950, 1960, 1970, the church in America was booming. The evangelical church, including Brethren Assemblies and, and Baptists and so many different churches. You might have heard the name of Billy Graham maybe, right? I'm sure you have. So Billy Graham was probably one of the most famous Christians of all time with one of the greatest impacts. And we went one day to his museum of, for him in Charlotte. It's amazing. If you look on the top things to do in Charlotte, it's like number one. That is crazy. And it is worth it. If you've never been... Billy Graham's library is very cool. So we go in there, we get to see all these things, and a guy just did it all, saw everybody, did incredible things. And his wife was actually an MK, so I really appreciate that. And I think she showed him the ropes so that he knew how to interact for this farm boy from Charlotte to interact with the international community. She was a great help to him. So on the very last part of the tour, there's this picture. And in, it's a picture of this park, just tons of people in it. Okay, it's, for, it's shot from above, and it says in a little note, it says, New York City, a park in New York City, I don't know which because I don't frequent New York City, but it said a, a park in New York City, and it says 192,000 people come out to listen to Billy Graham preach the gospel. Isn't that mind-blowing? 192,000 people come out to listen to someone talk about Jesus. And not all this, you know, some of the hogwash you see on TV. Now, this was real true blue. Sin, repentance, Jesus Christ, the gospel. And they came and they listened. They took their time. I ask you, could it happen again? I'm not going to be a naysayer. I wish it would. I hope it does. But that has not been happening recently, has it? It's a very different world we live in nowadays. We actually, people are really turned off by Christianity. We find that especially now we live in South Carolina in the South, in the Bible Belt. The young people have been churched and they're sick of it. And all they think of as Christians as hypocrites. And they've been there, they've done that, and we somehow have, haven't found how to reconnect with them, how to interest them in Jesus. And the way we were doing back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, let me just give you a heads up. They're not working anymore. Let me give you an example. 
One of the things Genesis, my wife, did to help her with her English was to get a job at Starbucks. I told her it was a bad idea. It's super liberal. What are you doing there? But she's like, I want to work at Starbucks. Okay, whatever. We're going to work here. And they, she's been working there for over a year. They love her to pieces, uh, and we really appreciate it. But one of the things is that the kids who work there are extremely liberal. And it's actually good because it gives us an insight into what they're thinking, how they're processing, and the story. Every day there's a different wacko story she comes home with. I'm like, they said what? They did what? So get this. One guy drives through, and instead of leaving a tip, he leaves a bunch of gospel tracks in the, in the tip jar. And they're not dumb. They knew he didn't leave money, but he did leave uh, tracks. And they start, and they're all connected. So they all can hear each other. And this guy just starts swearing his head off. His, uh, his uncle is an elder of a brother in church, by the way. But he's not a Christian anymore. And he starts swearing his head off, getting so upset. And he rips him up and throws him in the trash. He says, those Christians, blah, 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 blah. A bunch of hypocrites. <gasps> Genesis is just there. Because they all know she's the pastor's wife. They don't know what else to call her. So they call her the pastor's wife, right? And then another time, another car comes by. And instead of leaving a tip, they leave a Bible. You know one of those little, little tiny uh, Gideon's Bibles? And they put it in there. And, the, and, this, and another guy grabs it and says, all these and bleep, bleep, bleep Christians and stuff, right? And he's about to rip it up. The other guy, wait, 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 wait. It's a Bible. And he starts having this discussion. And Genesis is stone quiet. She's like, nope, not going to talk about it. You know, they're like, it's a Bible. But these Christians are hypocrites. But it's a Bible. I mean, you just can't destroy a Bible. It's sacred. And they're like, well. So finally they make this decision. They say, Genesis, we want you to have this. We don't want it, but we can't destroy it. So please take it. You see what's happening? If you go to someone's door, I don't know what neighborhood you live in, but we live in a pretty calm neighborhood in the small, in the south and stuff. If someone came to our door and knocked on the door, you know, half my inclination is to peek out the window and think about calling the cops. I'm going to be honest with you. It is hard to know how to connect with people today. It's a real question. It's a real real quandary that we have. And I think the question is, if Jesus were here today, what would he do? How would he react Because the message is the same. But the way we go about getting people interested in it, should it adapt? Let me, uh, I have this way over here, so let me bring this over here because I don't get lost. Let me walk you through something I like to call Monday's Gospel. So Monday's Gospel is the concept that Sundays, and even today and Wednesdays, we love the Gospel. What does the Gospel mean? Gospel is the greatest single thing that has ever come into our life. The idea that Jesus Christ died for our sins to make this acceptable to God. And a hundred more things that are included in that. But it's just huge. John 3.16, right? It's what we love when we celebrate. The question is, does the gospel we, we love and we talk about and we celebrate work at our nine to five? Work with our neighbor? Are we showing it to the world? Is it part of our lifestyle? Is it evident? Or do they see us as another hypocrite Christian? Christian? Or do they just kind of... Turn us off and who cares? We're like, oh, that's great for you. I, you know, works for you. I have what works for me. How do we relate? How do we get what we so love for them to appreciate? Because it is the single greatest thing. I want to invite you to look with me at Matthew chapter 15. Um, I have it actually all up here. So if you guys are lazy or whatever, you know, you guys can look on up here. All right. But Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 to 31 and we're going to ask ourselves that question. If Jesus were here today, how would he go about getting people excited about the gospel? A precursor to this is an idea, a concept. What was necessary for the gospel to be implemented? A very theological question, but in a sense it's actually quite simple. What is the bare bones necessity for the gospel to be implemented? 
Did Jesus have to necessarily be born? Yeah, he had to on human flesh entirely. But it could have happened later on. He could have just come down and took it on flesh. Boom. He could have died on the cross the same day, resurrected the next, and gone up to heaven. And, of course, we have to remember the prophecies being fulfilled. So I, I'm, I'm putting that aside. But that was all that was bare necessity for the gospel to be true. The burial, the d- death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and it was done. Why did Jesus spend 33 years on earth? Why did he spend 30 of those years basically incognito? Why be born to such a poor family in such a desolate area as far as what the Pharisees and the important people thought? The hicks from the north of Israel, from Galilee, like nobody's from a town of 400 people, many archaeologists believe, was Nazareth. And that's where he was born and raised. He was a carpenter's son. He never wrote any books. He never filled any stadiums. And he had 12 disciples and he got killed like a criminal at the end of it so you ask yourself why so much suffering why so much pain why that story you can go on and on about all of these details but part of it was if we if we take jesus's purpose in life and put it into maybe one verse we can take his own words mark chapter 10 verse 45 says the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give give his life in ransom for many so the purpose of jesus's life was the gospel to give himself for humanity that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life again his own words right that was the purpose of jesus but now the question was how does he get people to buy in to the gospel see the gospel is the end game the gospel is the purpose the gospel is what it's all about but how do i get people to understand that they need it so Let's take Jesus' own experience and his own lifestyle to show us. Verse 29 says, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went upon the mountain and sat down there, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And he put him at his feet, and he healed them. Other translations say healed them all as well. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. First of all, we have to realize that Jesus was a workaholic, not because he wanted to be, because they pressed him into duty. He had so much compassion that he was going up to a mountain to be alone, to be with the disciples. And many times in the scriptures you see him, he's like, okay, guys, we're going to take a break. We're going to go up. And somehow people find him and they follow him. And a massive crowd goes up, up a mountain to find Jesus when he was probably trying to get away. But his compassion was so great that he didn't say, hey, check my schedule. Sorry, I'm off for this weekend, right? I'm going to Mar-a-Lago or whatever. You know, you get my joke. That's not how he worked. He didn't go golfing on Saturdays. So Jesus Christ out of compassion kept on working yet you see here who they bring is the lame the blind the crippled i think it's hilarious that the worst people to be taken up a mountainside are exactly the ones that come looking for him they're that desperate to meet jesus and it says he heals them all and at the end it says they glorified the god of israel now the first question is this is this the gospel is the healing the gospel well no Healing is healing. The gospel is something that heals forever, eternally, the deep, everything of the soul. It it restores us in every single way. This is a temporary cure 
And here's another question. Why would Jesus heal people who are going to die anyways? What happened to everybody that Jesus healed? Every one of them died. Sorry to say that, but it's true. Every single person Jesus healed died. Now you say, what's the value in healing? Well, the value in healing, you know, health is everything. You hear people say that, you know, health is everything. You got to be healthy. You got to be this. He says, but you're going to die from something today or in 20 years. So what's the point unless you actually do something with your life? So this wasn't the end game. This wasn't the gospel. Now, we will switch a little bit and say there are some people who believe and they start teaching that basically the gospel is prosperity gospel or healing. And they fill up stadiums and they preach all these things and they make it all about the apostles or the preachers and they fill up, like I said, stadiums and they heal people. I can go into details, but there is a lot of showmanship, a lot of lies, and a lot of people come out very, very hurt and very saddened because they don't actually get something to change their soul. One of the challenges as brethren, as brethren church Christians or evangelical churches just kind of in general, is that we tend to be knee-jerk reaction. We tend to see them doing all this healing and all this huge conferences and all these big things and all this, and we're like, you know, that's bad, that's evil, that's wrong. We just got to stick to the gospel. But notice, Jesus Christ is healing. That was his first thing he did. It looks like the, the ministry started. He goes up and he starts healing. Then he starts teaching. We don't know what he taught. It actually doesn't tell us. It's actually interesting. We only see what he did, not what he said. But he heals all of them. Then he teaches. So it was important to him. What was he doing? And how do we replicate it today? Now, if someone gets sick today, what do we do? I wish we could heal. I really do. Remember my dad telling me one time, he prayed to the Lord very secretly, like, Lord, you know, I know that... People say we can't speak in tongues, but if, if you could help me, that'd be really cool. You're allowed to pray that. God, God doesn't get, he doesn't, we don't get to put God in the box and say, you're allowed to do this and that. God, like, who's your, he's your, you're the mother now? God is so much greater, stronger than anything we can imagine. I would not dare tell God what he can and cannot do. But we do see a precedent. And we do see a lot of fakers out there today who say they can do it. When Jesus went and healed, he healed everyone. He would go to the hospital and there would be nobody in the ICU. That's what would happen. And I don't see that today. So let's stop kidding around. But we can pray for those who are sick. And we can start to say, how can I use what he's doing for us today? Now, what is, what is the reason why he healed? Let me, let me explain something to you. If, someone, if, if some guy just randomly walked up to you in the street and said, Hey, John, you know, they know your name. They said, hey, John, um, you have cancer. You're going to die in about six weeks unless we get you on immediate chemotherapy, which will raise your life possibilities. You look at the guy, you're like, do I know you? You crazy? No, I'm not excited, not interested. Go away. And they say, oh, I'm so sorry. I forgot to tell you, I'm your doctor. I looked through your x-rays. I looked through your evidence and all this stuff. And we did all the tests. Oh, see, you know that you can trust him because he's a doctor. That's what we used to think, at least. Most of the time, a doctor builds trust. He lets you understand, I care about you. So therefore, if I tell you bad news, like you got to get chemo, it's not good news. It's not exciting news, but it means a possibility to be healed. So you say, yes, I will do it, even though it's difficult. So what Jesus was telling them was like, I'm going to give you the gospel, but you're not going to be able to swallow when first here. I got to call you a sinner. I got to tell you all your problems. So before we go into that, I got to show you, I am worthy of your trust. How do we build trust with those around us? Sometimes we just kind of want to do popcorn christianity you know we're doing evangelism today we're going to go out and we're going to do this we're going to do that and then we're going to come home and the rest of the year we're not doing anything good luck with that 
I've heard from missionaries across the world many times, especially in South America, that secretly they harbor kind of a fear of mission trips because it's kind of a big waste of time and nobody ever gets saved. I'm telling you this because missionaries have told us and I've seen it. People don't like to hear this, but it's kind of like, it's a lot of money for a field trip across the world. You don't know the language, you've got to use the translator, and you don't know these people. And the other problem is that there's usually no follow-up. So that's probably on the missionaries themselves too. So there's kind of some give and take. But my dad always said, if you're going to come and do a mission trip, come and build something. Come and interact with Christians and learn. Don't teach. You're visiting another culture that can share with you a lot. So that's some of the things we try to heal with that. But it's kind of this idea. It is hard work. It is long-term. It is building trust. Now, notice another thing Jesus does here. Then Jesus called the disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days. We don't know what he did, what he taught, but he does know that they have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed such a great crowd? And Jesus said to him, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. Now, first of all, um, one of the funny things is that they say, where are we going to get enough bread to feed what would equate to 4,000 men? Add the women, add the children. You might actually be talking about like 10,000 people or something like that or more, okay? A huge amount of people. Where are we getting enough bread? Well, if you literally turn back one chapter, you're going to find the feeding not of the 4,000, but the feeding of the 5,000, right? I don't know how much time elapsed, but our, my tendency is like, what a bunch of numbskulls. I think it's right there. Buddy. He just did it. He could do it again. Did you forget? Is that kind of the memory you have? You don't have Alzheimer's, do you? You're a little young, Peter. You know what I mean? And get this. The very next chapter, uh, the very next section after, actually what we're going to, whatever we're going to read at the end here, the next chapter, chapter 16, starts with them taking a boat. And they're like, we forgot to bring food. It's ironic. And it's very funny because it relates so much to me and you. We can... We can, you know, point fingers at the disciples, but how many times in our life have we gone through a crisis? We've prayed to the Lord, and he's answered it. And then all of a sudden, another crisis comes, and we're like, Lord, where are you? What's going on? This is terrible. And God is kind of could say to you, you numbskull. We've been through this. We've done this. I helped you every single time. I have a plan. I have a purpose. I have a reason. I have my timing. What's the big deal? So before getting too hard on the disciples, we need to realize this is very much human nature. We're scared of what tomorrow may bring, but he is in control. The other thing is when they say, we have seven loaves. Kind of like, you know, it's been three days. The loaves are pretty stale. They're pretty old. You know, you can have the loaves, but a few, it didn't say a few fish. It says a few small fish. Am I reading into this or is it possible? They're like, you know, take the bread, but the fish are mine. Jesus, they're really small. Nobody's going to like them. You know, you know how the older sibling does to the younger sibling. You're not going to like this. It is gross. That's that kind of idea. Why? Because he didn't really care to share this with everybody else. But notice Jesus here. I have compassion on them. It's been three days. They've had nothing to eat. And the most powerful one to me is I am unwilling to send them away hungry. It's kind of like if it's in your power to do good and you don't do good, instead you're actually doing evil. The only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men and women to do Nothing. You've probably heard that quote before. 
That's the same context. Jesus is like, here I am, and they have been with me. They've wanted to learn. They've wanted to be healed, and I have a responsibility to help them. Now, the next question is this. Why would Jesus feed people who are going to get hungry again? You talk about healing, it has a little bit of value. Why feed someone who's going to get hungry again? I mean, when I was an adolescent, I see some adolescents out here and young people. I mean, you get food at four, you're hungry at six and eight, and at midnight you're knocking on the door, you're like, hey, I'm hungry. Like, come on. You ate breakfast, you're ready for lunch. You ate lunch, you're ready for supper. You're finished the meeting, you're going to go look for some dessert. Am I right? And it's this constant thing. Why bother? What Jesus is saying is, I care about the little things. I care about the menial things. And I care about what you're experiencing to these people. Therefore, it proves I care about you. It's a way of building bridges, a way of building trust in a very real sense. I might not be able to go heal someone, but I can give someone a piece of bread, can I? You understand what I'm talking about? There are other ways that I can do good. Now, Jesus had a a few little touches that we didn't have, like breaking a piece of bread and giving it to 10,000 people. That's pretty cool. I always wonder how he did the fish. Like, did he break the head and everybody got a head? Did it come out of his hand? I'm going to ask him that in heaven someday because I'm very curious about dumb things like that. But anyway, the next thing is this. We've talked about how the gospel, we've understood. You know, it's not prosperity gospel. It's not healing gospel. But there's also another type of gospel they talk about, which is social gospel. This idea that we need to have ministries to help people. And sometimes us as evangelicals kind of have a knee-jerk reaction. These are soup kitchens. These are helping the poor. These are helping the homeless. These are helping veterans. These are, you know, a lot of different ministries. And in a sense, they do a lot of good. The problem with social gospel, though, what defines it is that they stop there. They don't talk about Jesus. They don't talk about sin. They don't talk about grace. It's just social. That's not the gospel. See, what they're doing is they're grabbing a piece and then throwing away the rest. But aren't we responsible for sometimes doing the same in converse like saying the gospel is the gospel but then we see the build-up steps helping people listening to people building bridges building trust and we think just an afternoon out will solve all the problems you know well you know we have a church sign whoever wants to come can come and i know you guys don't think that i know you guys aren't doing it i saw the list of ministries you guys do so i know that's not what's happening here so don't worry but there is a need to say hey are we really doing the whole process or are we taking shortcuts are we really trying to connect with our neighbors with our family members with our you know our kids classmates at work and trying to be a light for jesus not the one day a year but every single day in every single occasion and get this i am a terrible example many times of jesus christ and a lot of times i fail and i misrepresent who he is and he's the great, beautiful one. I'm a, like a brother once said, a Pharisee in rehabilitation. You know, that's where I'm at. Every day, every time at church, it says, Lord, I need you. And that's what we need to send to the message to the world. If anything good you see in me, it's because of Jesus. Anything bad you see in me, it's just me. Now, the gospel is actually portrayed, I believe, in a, in a picture form here. This is actually what it's all about. Now, I want you to take a little, bit of a, of a little bit of a jump with me and see if you agree. But I think there is a visual representation of what the whole gospel is about in picture form. Jesus Christ told us many times that he was the bread of life. He took a piece of bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body. Do this 
in remembrance of me. So this bread symbolizes my body, my sacrifice, my death. And then of if you in this case, he takes a piece of bread, breaks it, and gives food to four thousand men, maybe ten, twelve thousand people, right? Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of one man for all time, gave life to all who believe. So that is usually more of a greater miracle. That one life could save all those who wanted to believe. Now, if you walk through this, let's just do this real quick. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves of the fish, having given thanks, he broke, gave them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the crowds, and they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending them away, on to the next mission. Now, what's the first step in the gospel? What is my job in the gospel? Jesus Christ says, sit down, you have nothing to do here. What, am I spo- what can I do to be saved, to earn my salvation, to get any brownie points, to, you know, anybody's going to get to heaven and says, you know, I earned this, I was a good Christian, I did pretty good. No, there's nothing. The first job for us when it comes to the gospel is sit down. Then Jesus gives thanks. It's talking about him taking on a perfect body. Then that perfect body, the perfect being was broken and then given. It talks about the cross, the sacrifice on the cross. And interesting that he gives it not directly to the people, but to the disciples. We're the descendants in a, in a very real way of the disciples. We're those who took on the message of them. It's interesting that Jesus Christ is giving the message to them to give to the world, to us to give to the world. Well, we're not really very good examples. I wish the Lord would have get, left some angels around to like play the music. Nothing against everybody who plays music, but if there was a few angels doing the music, I, don't, I think we'd all just sit down and listen, right? If there was a few angels around to do the preaching, I would not have a job, and I'd be happy. Do you understand? That'd be awesome, but instead you're stuck with us. What are we going to do? But that's who he wants to do. He, he, he values us, as crazy as it sounds, and I really love that, and gives it to the crowd. And that says, in all eight, and we're satisfied. And that's, the, that's what the gospel is really about. The gospel is so hard to put into words because either you know Jesus or you don't. Jesus isn't an idea. It's not a religious concept. God isn't an idea. It's a person. It's a relationship. It's life-changing. It's life-transforming. It becomes the most important thing in your world. And everything around it circles it like the nucleus of an atom. It's kind of like being in love. How do you quantum... You know, how do you explain what being in love is? How do you put a number on it? How do you do a scientific test on love? It's either you are or you aren't. It, you know, it's not about the amount of dates or the money or the Ferraris, all this stuff, because super rich, wealthy people don't want to know what love is. And simple people sometimes do. Because it's not something that can be bought or understood. Jesus Christ, a relationship with them, is if you know it, you know it. And lastly, I love the fact that he includes women and children. In a society that didn't care about women and children, or the elderly, or the sick, those were his priority. So, now, the question for us is, does our gospel work on Monday? Does what we love and celebrate, the gospel of Jesus Christ that transform our lives, how can we transfer that to our workplace, to our friends, to our family? How can we find creative ways to bring the gospel to life? That is one of the most difficult, most challenging questions I think we have uh, before us today. Because in America, the numbers aren't going up. Things aren't looking up. 
And I think the biggest thing to say, first of all, as I said at the beginning, that we're not allowed to give up. We're not allowed to give in. May the Lord help us to say, how can I keep being a light for the gospel, even if I'm the last man standing or the last woman standing? And another question is, in, this, in America, a lot of people say, you know what, it's getting really sick, it's getting really sinful, it's getting really immoral, it's getting really gross. What would Jesus say about that? How did Jesus treat the gross, sick, disgusting people? Loved on them, didn't he? There needs to be kind of a, a, a recalibration in our mind and saying, when I see all of what's going on today in America, this Christian nation, now, this people, but it's going farther and farther away from God. They don't know him, and they need him. Instead of seeing the homosexual, see the person. Instead of seeing the girl who got an abortion, see the, see the, see the young woman. Instead of seeing the person who is a drug addict, see the soul. What Jesus would have done. May the Lord help us to see with compassion, like he had compassion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. Pray you bless Boulevard Bible Chapel. Pray you bless their ministries. They have many of them. Help us to open our eyes to know that maybe the, some of the formats that were used before maybe aren't resonating as much. Help us to be creative. Help us to be hardworking. Help us to try to resonate the same perfect, blessed gospel but in new, fresh, dynamic ways that really reach people. Not sure what that way is. Joining the swim team, chess club, social media, being a good neighbor. So many ways, but help us, Lord, to not give up, to not give in. For your glory, for your honor. In Jesus Christ's heavenly name.